0: Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage, episode 94, September 2017. This month we are talking with Gwidian Sullivan. Gwidian is the director of brand and marketing for Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company and the project director of the New Play Exchange for the National New Play Network. He is also an award-winning playwright in his own right, and we'll be talking with him about his own work as well as his efforts with Wooly Mammoth and the National New Play Network. To make theater more accessible, not just to audiences, but to its practitioners around the world. I decided to start off with the juxtaposition of his uh, creative side against his professional side. You know, that old right brain, left brain thing. And discovered that possibly his cranial hemispheres have more in common with each other than we originally surmised.
1: You know what's interesting is I don't actually think of them as all that distinct at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, I really think of myself as a as a writer. I've always been a writer for really as long as I've been alive. I've been writing for myself for pleasure since I was twelve. At fourteen, I started writing for public access television in my in Baltimore. By eighteen, I was working as a journalist, uh, and you know, paid part of my way through college working as a as a journalist uh and have just explored every genre until i sort of found my true home in the theater um but but the work i do in in, you know in marketing theater is just another kind of storytelling for a different kind of audience on different platforms i don't really think of it as as separate i mean it's obviously a different medium but ultimately, I've got a story. I've got people I want to engage in that story. I've got a different form the the story can take, right. given the constraints of the medium it's it's being told in, and that's it. Um, I mean, I, I'm not not to deflect your compliment, which I appreciate, but I. I feel like a unified human being. It makes all, it all makes sense to me and it all adds up. I was never a hard journalist, I covered uh, amateur sports in Chicago, like uh, running and triathlons and that sort of thing, for I think two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I was a restaurant reviewer, I was a book reviewer, so these were more, less, um, Formulaic kinds of journalism. Then I got a master's degree, in, and my undergraduate degree are in poetry, and I wrote poetry for a while. I was a professor of poetry, and uh, I'm you know writing for film now as well as the stage. And it's uh, you know I don't know how to say it. It's just words. It's just people who want to consume words, and sometimes those words are about defining images as well. Right stage directions and it all it all feels like it's of a piece
0: you are the director of brand and marketing for woolly mammoth and woolly mammoth is uh one of the long running 36 years now i think 38 actually 38 that's a huge undertaking i mean i mean woolly mammoth is a nationally known theater it's it's got millions of dollars behind it. It is, you know, a, a, a signal place in the world of theater, at least you know, in America. So, you know, I, the the
1: interesting thing about Woolly is that we are actually a mid-sized theater by by the reckoning of our budget. Right. Uh, I mean, within D.C., we're in the you know one of the seven or eight largest theaters, but. Um, you know, nationally, we're a mid-sized theater, as theaters go, uh, but our, we punch above our weight class. We punch far above our weight class,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and our reputation nationally is in some ways better than our, or, or bigger than our reputation locally. People locally think of us as a, a relatively um, edgy, out there, you know, visceral place to go see a play and and certainly they appreciate that we are pushing the envelope creatively but nationally they really get our mission which is in some ways to be the research and development arm for the american theater or at least part of that research and development arm we innovate in bigger ways so i feel the pressure of being of being the steward of the woolly mammoth brand both locally and nationally but in very different ways locally i have to serve my community i have to make sure that real human beings living in dc and in the dc metropolitan area um, are on you know know what we are doing understand how what we are doing matters to them and and can have an impact on their lives and you know know how they get how they get connected to it and how they cut co- Come to shows and come to events, and uh, how to make that happen <laughs> nationally. I feel, uh, my, you know, my stewardship of the brand is about innovating at a high level, about experimenting, inventing new ways of making theater, of marketing theater, of promoting theater. You know, in just in the last um, two weeks, we launched a new app within the Woolly Mammoth website that it sort of combines Doodle and Venmo. So it allows um, a person to log into our site, pick five performances they want to go see, add their friends' email addresses, and the app then invites their friends to choose which of those performances they can, they can make. Uh, they, the, the person who created the, the herd, as we call it, then gets emails when everyone um, picks the dates they can come. That person then picks the picks the date that everyone's going to come, and we bill each person separately. So, in other words, you, you we use the app to find the night that works for all your friends, to split the cost so that there's no social awkwardness where you have to ask someone to pay you back, right. uh, and so that there's no um, fear of not sitting together because we make sure all the seats are together, and we sort of lock in a special low price uh, if you use the tool. So like, we're trying to make going to the theater with friends easier than it's ever been before. And that's just something we did in the last two weeks. That app sounds great. Just today, we launched a new kind of subscription uh, that's intended to serve just the theater community in DC. Right. So any member uh, of any of the professional organizations, guilds, or unions, uh, like you know IATSE or SDC or the dramatist guild uh, can or any staff member at any of the other theaters in town can now subscribe to our upcoming season for 20 bucks a show we wanted to make sure that seeing work at the level we created was not inaccessible for the artists in our city
0: that's, uh, that's the, wonderful that's that's such a great thing to do I wish I lived there. <laughs> <laughs> knowing that you are probably not using the right words but uh, I'll use your words stewarding okay, the brand and marketing for a theater company of some notability and weight and I'm thinking that's it's got to be an ongoing continually permeable or flexible thing uh, the, because society changes mores change Politics changes, especially within the past year or so, and people's perception of things also happens to change. And at the time of this taping, we are uh, there. There have been a few incidents at theaters that have been showing, let's say Julius Caesar. Okay, where there have been people getting up and protesting for whatever reasons. Getting the face of Woolly Mammoth across to an ever-changing or sometimes quickly changing audience has got to be a tap dance that doesn't really stop. How do you gauge how to adjust and tailor, you know, how your prospective audiences see Woolly Mammoth?
1: The real answer is that you don't actually change. So when you are the steward of a brand... You have to really and, and brand is the like the lens through which I approach all the marketing work that I do. It always has been. Yeah. Um, when you're the steward of a brand, <clears throat> you're making a promise to the world. A brand is a promise. A promise is something you don't want to break, or renege on, or go back on, or half break, or you know, anything. You really to keep trust, you have to fulfill a promise. So when Wooly says it is going to be this kind of place, uh, you know, what you know, if if it asserts that it's going to be a place where you can go to get, as we say, rousing, visceral epiphanies, mm-hmm. it has to keep doing that no matter how the world changes around it. We, you know, if we had had a different election outcome, we would have had to be that in a diff- within a different world than than we're currently in. So, I, you know, it's just about being a brand steward is about knowing the brand and living up to it day after day after day in in small ways you know our brand tells us that we need to be innovative so we innovate day after day after day it's really
0: just you know who we are let's jump subjects here for a second i discovered you through the new play exchange um which is part of the uh, national you know new play network you are the project director for this and this is a database which I get is uh, hopefully it's the right word of, of uh, to call it which is still growing and has playwrights from all over listing their works connecting with each other reviewing each other's works talking about each other's works where did this come from and and, and how long did it take to put something like this together
1: the truth is like the people want to say oh Gwitty and he did the new play exchange it's not really the case. I mean, what really happened is that the idea kind of emerged.
0: Right.
1: Uh, you know, there were lots of pe- lots of people nationwide. Maybe five years ago, lots of people were talking. It was in, the idea of a database of plays, in 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 different forms, was just out there in the world. It was bubbling. Its time had come, and but it or its time was coming. People were, you know suggesting like in in conversations what if we, what if there was this what if there was that and I, and I was trying to foment as many of those conversations as I could because I just wanted it to exist and you know one day I got really you know I just got really impassioned and I wrote a manifesto uh something called building the new play oracle I think and I put po- and I wrote howl round and I said look this needs to exist and, and I think you need to publish this piece. And they said, yes. So once, and, and this was like a, maybe the longest blog post they ever they ever published. It was huge because it was a detailed description of what eventually became the new play exchange. And once it was out there in the world, everyone had a sort of focus for all the conversations they've been having. People said, yeah, this is the thing. And the, you know, the conversations got more intense. Uh, which is where um, the National New Play network entered the picture. They said they, you know they decided to build it basically they said we're going to figure out how to build a version of this for the field and um, uh, you know they're based the NNPN we, we are based in DC. In fact, uh, I have the fortune good fortune of having two offices within Woolly Mammoth Uh, my office as a marketing director is on the third floor and in the basement is my office as the project director of the New Play Exchange um, because that's where NNPN is housed, is in Woolly Mammoth. So they were there, they were local and they said, listen, you wrote this great manifesto, come talk to us about it. And sort of by the end of the conversation, we realized they just needed to hire me to run the project. So they did. Um, So I spent probably the first year and a half flying around the country, literally to groups of playwrights, directors, artistic directors, dramaturgs, literary managers, agents, publishers, just in huge numbers in New York and Minneapolis and San Francisco and Chicago, and uh, worked with our sort of four partners. uh, uh, We have four organizations we partnered with to build the thing to, to hear from as many Theater practitioners as I could. My goal was to walk into a conversation saying, you know, loosely, we're going to build something that'll be a, a digital platform that should serve the entire new play sector of the theater. What would you like it to do? And people would tell us, and we would we would listen and take a lot of notes, and then we would come back to them six months later and say, all right, here's what we've heard from all over the country, here's what we're thinking about building, what do you think about it? And they would make it better. you know, So we had a year and a half of learning and growing and meeting with people, but by the end of that year and a half, there was a tremendous passion for us to get started. But of course, it takes a while to build technology. So we spent right. a, about a year building the, the first version, uh, working with the firm that we're still working with to develop it. Uh, We beta tested it with a couple hundred um, users from our partner organizations, and then we launched it. We launched it with relatively low expectations. I think we we thought that in our first year, we would try to sign up 400 new users, and we signed up our 400th user in two weeks. How many do you have now? There are currently 3,600 playwrights with... 13,500 and some plays Hmm. there are 1800 readers which is um uh literary managers dramaturgs artistic directors etc there are 370 theaters and then there are uh, thousands of what we call basic users which are people who just have the ability to look up plays so i mean we've really We like to think that we've at this point reached about twenty percent of the new play sector in North America. Uh, However, we also are worldwide. I mean, we have users in all fifty states and forty-four different countries. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So you know, there's and there's no reason why we shouldn't serve the entire world, other than we need to do a lot of work to make our platform uh, multilingual. We we have all along been aware of the need to have parallel versions in other languages so um, the infrastructure is ready it's just everything we want to do costs a lot of money and right uh, you know if you know someone with a million bucks who wants to invest in supporting the efforts of the American theater and who wants to make an investment that will serve everyone at one time even a hundred thousand dollars would make a difference fifty thousand dollars you know, we're always looking for people to, you know, ours is a non-profit endeavor. We're not trying to get rich. We're trying to serve. The way to describe the New Play Exchange, it is a neutral platform mm-hmm. for connecting plays and playwrights on the one hand and producers on the other, built for the common good of the entire New Play sector. That's... So it serves really all of the, all of us who are practitioners of the American theater in different ways. Uh, and, and that platform consists of the world's largest database of scripts by living writers.
0: What's the representation of women to men as playwrights? Do you know that? Yes, I do. And I am
1: proud to say that from the inception of the new play exchange, from birth to the present day, it is approximately 50-50 men and women. That's not bad. Yeah, no, That's... it's pretty darn good. It's. Uh, I mean, I think actually at this exact moment, it might be... Fifty-one and a half men to forty-eight and a half women. It teeters up and down depending on who's joining. Women, please join. Yeah. We want to,
0: but that's, uh, you. But know. those are still good odds. I mean, compared to the rest of of the business, where uh, you know, it's one out of every four or every five, you know, is, is a woman who's getting produced. Artistic directors, men outnumber women.
1: It is um, no longer acceptable if you ask me for anyone to say. There are no women playwrights in our pipeline. When you have a database that has 6,500 plays just by women,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you can't really say I don't know where to find them. Uh, you know, similarly for playwrights of color, which is where where our database is maybe ahead of the world in some ways, but still behind where it should be.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I don't actually have a percentage. Uh, that I can share, but it is not diverse enough. I want more writers of color in the New Play Exchange. I can't say that any clearer. I, I have been trying to promote the database with um, artists of color as much as I humanly can, and do as much as I humanly can to support that. It's accessible. It's here. We, you know, we want everyone. Right. We've made it as open and transparent as we can. So, you know, I I'm trying to be proactive and. And not just sit back and wait for people of color to, to come right. waltzing in the digital door. Although, you know, again, they have to, you know, to some extent. But it's not. I've got to be more proactive, a, and I'm trying to be. If anyone listening to this podcast knows a uh, historically black college or university where I could come give a lecture about the new play exchange or a presentation at a um, you know any theater company you know just just reach out to me, and I will do what I can to try and
0: make that happen. The new social media technology uh, between the app you were telling me about before and the new play exchange um, is it safe to say that you 've embraced the new social media technology
1: <laughs> yeah, I was an early adopter on of uh, of Twitter um Uh, For example, and I found my tribe there early on through the 2 a.m. Theater um, Twitter stream, which I, you know, isn't as active as it once was, but it's still there and uh, worth examining if you're getting onto Twitter for the first time. Um, I think its importance has to some extent diminished. uh, I'm speaking about Twitter. Mm-hmm. Because Twitter is still trying to find itself fully, uh, and I, I don't know that it has. I don't think Twitter itself knows what it wants to be yet. Uh, it's still evolving. You know, it's it's good at some things and not good at others. Um, I, I you know, of course I'm on Facebook. Everyone, uh, ever almost everyone is at this point, and it's not that interesting. But I, I have made it a point to make my presence on Facebook uh, less sh- about sharing memes and more about sharing rich, if snackable, content so that uh, that I've created right. so that others have a rich experience of
0: Facebook. For me, Facebook is a staple, and I, I don't think I can do without it because of the outreach and the way I connect with my friends throughout the theater world.
1: <laughs> I engaged in an incredibly long... Facebook conversation yesterday. I mean, it was 50 people going back and forth for many, many, many nested comments, and that was great, but it work, it's work to generate that kind of, you know, good, healthy, rich conversation.
0: That lecture, Dramatists in the Age of Social Media, you have three diagrams of two of which are, are hubs, and the last is more of a, of a web structure, dots connecting to dots, and the last one is less ordered, but much more thorough where dots reach out to mother dots than the previous two, uh, which had, I think, two, uh, one hub with uh, several outposts, and then three hubs connected together, each with several outposts, but there was an ordered structure in this. Now, the third one had no ordered structure. And you said, this is the way that things are evolving. And I'm just wondering, because you mentioned um, several sociological and historical things that have happened, you know, over time. You mentioned the Arab Spring example. And I'm wondering if this is indicative of the way society, in your opinion, of the way society is going, where we're, we're... Moving away from central hubs with little outposts, both structurally, politically, um, and moving on through Facebook, Twitter, and all these things where we constantly recreate ourselves into smaller entities that are less attached to the larger ones around us. So we're becoming more adrift and less less anchored to a central pillar of society, do you think? Before I answer
1: your question, let me sort of back up for people and um, for listeners and say, I believe that every civilization has a bunch of quiet metaphors by which our thinking is governed, and I think we are coming out of an age in which our thinking was governed by a kind of top-down org chart. President, Vice President, Secretary of State, Cabinet, Senate, Congress, American voting public. So, you know, you start at the top and you work your way down. Uh, in, a, in a traditional, you know, family, in a traditional nuclear family, father, mother, elder siblings, younger siblings. Um, we have that top-down metaphor in our brains. In our, it, it, it governs the way we think. We can't. We have a hard time seeing our way outside of it. We still, we still suffer from this. Try to imagine a corporation of any kind or a nonprofit organization that isn't structured as a pyramid, top-down. It's very hard for people to do. We've got pyramids on our money for this very reason. Right. You know, this is how we think. But about 50 years ago as computers began to enter our lexicon our 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 thinking the metaphors began to change that governing top-down metaphor that's not how a computer works it's not how the internet works so whereas we used to design our our train systems like the one in paris where there was a central hub and spokes radiating in all directions from it. We now design all of our networks so that they are decentralized. Computer networks are decentralized. There are nodes all over the country. Every computer connected to the internet is a node on the internet. And information flows throughout the network as it needs to flow rather than in some top-down way. So this metaphor is slowly creeping into our consciousness and slowly affecting the way we think. And the more, the deeper it gets inside of us, uh, the more it will start affecting the, the ways we structure civilization. We're starting to see more collectives instead of um, nonprofit theaters. Uh, one of those is uh, The Welders that I co-founded uh, four years ago in D.C. Uh, like 13 p in New York, like the Workhouse Collective in Minneapolis, uh, like any one of a dozen others that have sprung up since we launched the Welders. It is a, you know an increasingly important shift in our in our thinking. How does it work? Uh, we founded the welders uh, uh, six of us, uh, five playwrights and one um, creative director. And for the first three years, we uh, built the organization from scratch, founded a, you know, got got our 501c3 status, built a board of directors, uh, built an audience, a website, a checking account, all the things that any nonprofit has. And we produced one play by each of the five member playwrights. And at the end of our term, we gave the entire organization away to a new clump of playwrights. They literally own it now and are running it and producing their own plays, one after another. And when they are done in, I think, two and a half more years or three more years, I can't remember, they're going to give it away and do exactly the same thing to another clump of playwrights. And with that, each new generation of the welders, the organization changes a little, evolves a little, responds more fluidly to the um, to the ecos- arts ecosystem in which it exists. Uh, so that you know, it will remain nimble and flexible forever. What a great idea. <laughs> Thanks. We kind of had a great, those of us who founded it, I'm looking right now at, at the picture on my wall of the six of us. These are my best friends in the whole world in the theater. I mean, I'm, I'm closer to them than anyone else. We had a great run. We had a major national news story about us before we had our first production. We had our second major national story about us before our second production we won the Helen Hayes award. That's the, you know, the big awards, um, uh, ceremony in DC for outstanding emerging theater company. And in the first year that our work was eligible for individual Helen Hayes awards, uh, two of our, the, the first two productions we had were both nominated for Helen Hayes awards and one of them won it. Uh, so, uh, you not know, we had, we had a great run. We had three three different foundations. Call us, and tell us we're giving you X thousand dollars. Just write us a letter asking for that amount of money. We didn't approach them; they approached us because our because our organization was about generosity. It was about paying it forward. It was about building something bigger than us. It was not about ownership. It was about the network. It was about serving and strengthening. The network of artists in DC and connecting artists more directly to audiences so I mean that
0: that this is the way of the future and and I want to see more people embrace it that's such an interesting idea uh, how do you feel watching the next group of people take your organization and move on with it I mean it, do you feel like somebody's inherited your children no, I feel incredibly proud of them. I mean,
1: honestly, so the two plays that were nominated for that Helen Hayes Award, yeah. one was mine and one was the the player who came after me. And I was thrilled that he won. Because it, it because it, it's a it's a gift for them. It is right. a you know I, I you like to see the things you make in this world thrive and, and move onward. Um, yeah, I don't you know, I, I birthed
0: it. But it's got to live on its own. I want to talk about your writing? You mentioned early about all the different kinds of writing that you've done. You know, be, between journalism and book reviews, and you're doing screenwriting now. You're also a playwright. And yeah, quickly, how, quickly, how did you fall into in, into in, into theater? And then I'd like to talk about your play, Abstract Nude, for a moment. Um, but. Give us an idea how you how you got into you know, the playwright.
1: So, you know, I kind of, as I said earlier, I kind of wandered through genres my whole life. I would try this, I would try that. I tried a novel. I wasn't good at it. I tried short stories. I was okay, but, it, you know, and the, the biggest commitment I made was to being a poet. I did that. I studied, got an undergraduate degree in poetry, master's in poetry, published a book of poems, taught poetry, and, and loved it, but... but then fell out of love with it. It was a lot of work hammering at a big hunk of granite to get one word better than the next word. And the, the amount of care that other people, uh, like, you know, audiences don't care about poetry as much as poets do. It was just, it was a lonely, mm-hmm. unfulfilling work. So that was where I dropped off. I, you know, I think I dropped off and then I tried to write a screenplay And then I said, no, this isn't it. And I decided to take two years off. Uh, I joined a dot-com in the hope that I could get... This was back when that was the thing people did. Right. (laughs) I worked 100-hour weeks for two years um, building um, educational software. And um, at the end of two years and $70 million of investment, the company went bankrupt. The only thing that was left of it was the software I had, my team had built, which was bought by McGraw Hill, and I, so I, I was it. I was, I was done. They closed the doors. I was the last employee, or one of the last twenty. We ended with twenty of us, having been a two hundred and fifty person company. Wow. And I had, you know, when you work a hundred hours a week, you don't have a lot of time to spend a lot of money, and they were feeding us lunch every day, uh, because that's what you did back then. So I didn't. I wasn't. You know, it was just. I, I saved a lot of money and I ended this thing with 18 months of Cobra insurance and enough money to live without taking any work for like eight months. And I, you know, I breathed for a couple of weeks and f- said, I got to figure something out. And I sort of saw this playwriting class and I was like, you know what? That's the one genre I've never tried. And I started writing and it just felt like coming home. I was like, This is why I always wanted to write my plays and as if they my poems as if they were dialogue. This is why I cared so much about you know symbol and and images because i was because I wanted to imagine my work come to life visually and uh you know it all it just it just felt at home i felt at
0: home yeah. I, I I think you and I are very similar on that uh um, on that aspect I, I wrote novels and short stories for years and yeah I pumped out a bunch of them but once I started writing plays it was exactly as you said I felt like I came home to a home that I never knew existed so let's talk about abstract nude I was going through your website and reading all about your, uh, your, your different works and this one seemed to grab me because I'm, I'm a history buff and for me the thing about history is who's telling the truth and whose truth is it. Essentially, is there a truth to anything? Who writes the histories that we read, right? So what's the perspective that we have about society that other people are telling us? Abstract Nude is, is a play about one painting having different effects on its different owners or people who've come in contact with it. And they're all meaningful in one way or another, but the painting itself, represents different things to different people can you take us through how this how this play happened for you i mean this was
1: this this play was like my first big success well-reviewed in the washington post uh you know it's, it's been a while part of this comes from my years as a professor when i was a professor i worked at the maryland institute college of art which is the oldest art college in the country it's in baltimore and so i was teaching poetry and and fiction and nonfiction to art students to people who who painted their way through the world and sculpted their way through the world and made these beautiful you know fabric art and uh, photography and i was just you know inundated all the time with amazing imagery with them just i just i was just surrounded by young people doing spectacular things and that that stuck with me over the years that sort of the notion of like you would sit in on these critiques where the artists would put their work up in front of the room and, and you just have a room full of people who are seeing different things in the same image and really engaging with it in different ways but it but the image itself is unchanged so that you know I just I, I was I thought why not create a play about a painting and actually, so sort of the play is in reverse chronological order. So we, we follow the painting back over a period of, I think, two or three weeks uh, to the moment it was created. So we see it pass from owner to owner. It, it bounces around a little bit in, I think, to three different owners in, that, in those three weeks. And the, because it bounces from one person to another, their lives intersect and there are conversations about the painting. And, um, you know, it turns out there's a little bit of an ugly secret at the heart of why the painting was created. And really ultimately it becomes a search for the creator of the painting. And that's the sort of driving force of the drama is how to find the artist mm. who, who painted the thing and we never do see him. Um, so really at the end of the day, abstract nude is a play about all of us trying to find our creator who may or may not exist and whom we all see in different ways uh you know and whose work we all see in different ways it's really a play about god it's really a play about belief what what do we believe or not believe and why we're all looking at the same evidence this lovely planet we live on you know the 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 heavens above us the miracles in the human brain and the human body and the great work of civilization and some of us see a creator and some of us don't And some of us see that the world is ugly and some of us see that it's beautiful and some see pain and some see you know we all see different things but we're looking at the same thing Uh, and so that you know for me this is just a play about being human and looking for meaning in a world that may or may not have any meaning in it. So, in every production of abstract nude, the painting has been represented by an empty frame. Uh, actually, that's not true. Once it was a, an, once it was there was a painting, but we never let the audience see it because we didn't want people to um, assess it and say, "Oh, that's a good painting," or "That's not."
0: Right. Well, Gwinnie and Sullivan, it has been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, and we wish you uh the best of luck with all of your projects.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for taking the time. And I have to say, George, I've I've just noticed that we're both married to women named Mara.
0: Yes, we are. We we do have that, that exquisite fortune.
1: Yes. And well we're lucky men.
0: We are definitely lucky. <laughs> <again>. <laughs> Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage Off Stage. On Stage Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't yet covered, oddly enough, or know of someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Serve Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Onstage Offstage wishes to let its listeners know that we believe in and advocate for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace, without fear. We believe in zero tolerance for acts of hate and bigotry, We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender orientation. Onstage, offstage, we'll never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you.